Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This content may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion advised. This isn't the kind of thing that can be kept a secret forever. They're here to stay, and a secret this large can only be kept for so long. When my three-year-old tugged at my shirt, and he pointed toward the wall, and he looked at me and said, Daddy, who's that man crying up there? From Killer Podcasts, true tales of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events, this is Disturbed. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. This week, we're bringing you two true stories that will alarm and unnerve. So sit back, listen closely, and dive into the horror. Our first story comes to us from Reddit user Ailes Neolith, featuring their in-depth experience with beings from another world. Introduction. Please note that I will be vague in some places about any identifying information, credentials, locations, people, procedures, etc. I don't want to be identified and harassed. I have a professional background in anthropology. I also have some informal experience in philosophy, which unexpectedly ended up being the most useful of my skills on this project. Professionally, I worked for a university in the Western United States. For cultural reasons, students and facility at this particular university are more likely to be selected for sensitive government work. I suspect that I was selected because of my low profile, my squeaky clean history, a lack of any drug or alcohol use, my broad range of skills and knowledge related to human civilization, and some connections that I have in academia. My most significant work has been in ethnography and cultural anthropology. I'm sure you're wondering why I'm posting this here instead of sending this information somewhere more important. Since the UAP hearing happened, and other whistleblowers have come forward, I felt safe enough to speak out privately. I don't know how useful my testimony was, and I felt like I was brushed off. As I'll get into later, I don't have any documents to hand over or any first-hand experience with UFOs or ETs. I do have trust in our institutions that do their job, come to the right conclusions, and eventually begin disclosure. I have a hope that the truth will be widely known in the near future. I wasn't interested or involved in the UFO alien phenomenon prior to starting my work. As the work progressed, I became convinced that there was something very real behind all of this. And now that I'm released from the project, ufology has become a special interest of mine. I think now is a good time to put my story out there. In early 2017, 
I was contacted by one of my connections at the university, who urged me to apply for a position in a special research project, claiming that the project needed someone with my expertise, the pay would be good, and that they would help me get in. This individual helped me apply and gave me a rundown about what to expect from the hiring process. This process involved an extensive background check, applying for a security clearance, several interviews, and training for security, communication, and working with sensitive information. Going through the rat maze took several months, but I made it through much faster than anticipated and was finally ready to actually begin working in early 2018. I was apprehensive on my first day of work. I had jumped through all the hoops and I still didn't know what the subject of the research was. I didn't feel comfortable with all the security. I'm on the spectrum and while I'm good at masking, procedures and bureaucracy make me confused and nervous. The workday began by entering a secure facility where my identity was verified with ID and biometrics. After passing through, I would go to my workplace and have to pass through another layer of security. In the workspace, we were monitored constantly and subject to random security checks. The workspace was a medium-sized set of offices where I and six other researchers worked, one of which was assigned to train me. Each of these researchers had different backgrounds and were assigned to a different part of the project. Over the next few days, my trainer walked me through the research process. It was then when I finally learned what the subject of the research was. My trainer gently explained that we were working with information about an exotic intelligence, meaning a sapient, non-human species of an unknown origin. Our job was to take the information that had been provided for us from outside sources, sort it based on its content and usefulness, and in the end, produce a comprehensive report that summarized what we know about this intelligence with a special focus on its motivations and intentions. This report could then be used to brief elected officials in the future, and even the public. We were allowed to make certain assumptions in the report, such as that these beings and their motivations could be understood by humans and that the information we have is accurate. I had endless questions and became distraught. And I think they could tell because my trainer figured it would be best if I was given time to myself to read some of the material and digest the information. As I learned more, the shock faded and my fear was replaced with curiosity. A lot of the work wouldn't be very interesting to the members of this sub. The average workday consisted of going through security, getting permission to retrieve certain documents, then organizing and annotating the documents. Much of the documents were only related to the subject in tangential ways and didn't convey very much of use. In a sense, we were separating the wheat from the chafe and getting the material ready to be used for the project. After finishing, we would secure the workplace and leave. Over the months that followed, we slowly built up a corpus of useful information. I obviously do not have the report with me and it has been a while, but I will now relate to you the most important information that I can recall related to these beings. We know more about every other aspect of these beings than we do about where they actually come from. We do have some tentative ideas and speculation, but multiple hypotheses are still on the table. As I'll get into later, there is good evidence that life on Earth and these beings share a common ancestor. Our job is to keep an open mind and let the evidence lead the way instead of falling for our own pet theories or cultural prejudice. 
the extraterrestrial hypothesis makes some sense, but it's not the only option. During work, my colleagues often called them aliens or ETs. In the interviews I've read, the interview subjects are vague, absurd, contradictory, or evasive when asked about their origins. Perhaps this is because we aren't in a position to understand where they come from, or perhaps there are problems with communication. Maybe they simply don't want us to know. In regards to the appearance of the ETs, UFO mythology is dead on. Generally, they look like diminutive humanoids with large heads, reduced facial features, and very large eyes, which are sometimes covered in a transparent black film. Earlier specimens usually do not have the film. Later specimens do. Their average height is five feet tall. They have two long arms and two legs. They have three long fingers and an opposable thumb. They have feet with four toes. They may have fingernails and toenails, but not always. When they do, they are mottled and dark. And they secrete waste through their skin, similar to how we sweat. They ingest liquid food, just like we do. They wear clothing, usually in the form of a very thin blue or gray high-collared garment, as well as boots. Their heads are large, as mentioned before. In some individuals, there are pronounced ridges on the head and upper back, which seem to relate to different kinds of implants in a way that's not understood. As far as we can tell, every individual has an artificial lattice woven through their brain and nervous system. I'll get into that later. No two individuals look exactly alike. Head shape, eye shape, and size, the patterns and protrusion of the ridges, and skin color vary between individuals. Life on Earth and the ETs share the same kind of biochemistry. They are made up of cells, use DNA, proteins, etc. They can be studied and understood with the same principles that we use to study life on Earth. This has fed into speculation about their origins. The most conservative hypothesis is that they share our biochemistry because they also originate from Earth, but there are other theories. Life on Earth and wherever they come from could both be descended from a common ancestor. Perhaps life everywhere in the universe shares the same biochemistry. The striking similarities between their anatomy and human anatomy leads me to wild speculation about whether the individuals we see are specifically designed to resemble humans in order to facilitate interaction. There is a small collection of biological material that has been retrieved from craft that shares no resemblance to humans and defies description. This material is like a web of nervous tissue which is interlaced into the structure of the craft itself. More from this story after the break. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to Disturbed. We now resume our story with Reddit user Ailes Neolith about his experience researching extraterrestrial life. 
Before, I mentioned an artificial lattice which is integrated into the nervous system. This lattice is at the heart of their technology. In interviews with subjects, they demonstrated the ability to communicate with and detect the presence of others of their kind in the same facility in different rooms. Tools retrieved from craft would be responsive to the touch and intentions of the ETs, but would be totally inert in the hands of human operators. This lattice is probably what makes these abilities possible. It is made of ordinary elements like copper and aluminum, and there is no discernible reason why it should be able to do what it seems to do. We were allowed access to documents that describe the capabilities of their craft as well as eyewitness encounters, but we were not allowed any data that would explain how their propulsion systems work or about anything regarding the reverse engineering of craft. The reasoning behind this is obvious. The special interests involved have begrudgingly begun to accept that disclosing the existence of the intelligence is necessary over the long term, but the one thing they refuse to do is relinquish their monopoly over exotic technology. I don't have much insight to give about the craft because the project focused more on the extraterrestrials themselves, their society, and implications for our society. The craft have a wide range of appearance, size, and behavior. It seems like each craft is designed for a specific purpose. Every craft is different, but they can be grouped based on shape and purpose. There are some edge cases that won't fit into this neat categorization. There are hundreds of objects in orbit that are likely created by this intelligence. At first glance, they look like commonplace space debris, but on rare occasion, they will move in a way that is not attributable to gravity, meet with other objects, or expel an object. Tracking these is very difficult, and we know very little about them, including their size. The most commonly seen objects are large reflective orbs or pills that move at high speeds. Usually, they're only seen for a second, but on other occasions, they follow aircraft, hover over sensitive locations, move in strange, illogical ways, and even suddenly disappear. At night, these orbs sometimes emit orange light, although other colors can also be seen. These objects have been seen submerging into the ocean, as well as other bodies of water. There are egg-shaped craft which move in more predictable ways, although they move much faster than any man-made craft. We were allowed to have a lot of information related to these. These craft are the most likely to fail, and they are manned. Biological material and even living organisms have been recovered from these craft. These are the most interesting to me, as they contain occupants, living spaces, and large rooms full of equipment. We speculate that these are surveyors or scientists. In one particular case, a craft of this kind contained samples of Earth biota. There are no control panels or any kind of obvious mechanism for controlling the craft. This kind of craft has unfortunately become more uncommon over time. The classic flying disks and crescents have the greatest presence in popular culture, but they are not the most common objects. These are speculated to be stealth vehicles that are used for reconnaissance and research. On many occasions, these have landed completely empty. Because of my past work experience, most of my work on the report was related to actual interviews that had taken place with ETs. They were retrieved from crashes, but also from landings where the craft seemed to have landed on purpose and the beings came voluntarily. Reading these was very surreal. 
and I suspect the context of these interviews is part of the reason for so much secrecy. The way that they were being treated was inhumane and very unethical. The ETs have a very close relationship with their technology. They cannot survive very long while separated from their craft and from each other. They can't eat anything other than a special kind of liquid food, and human-made substitutes were not sufficient replacements. Throughout their stay on Earth, they would suffer from malnutrition and a kind of toxic buildup in the body. Because of how valuable they were, every effort was taken to keep them alive and conscious, even against their wishes. The situation reminded me of the case of Hisashi Ochi. Something that deeply frustrated me was that they seemed to want to show us so much more, but because of the irresponsible behavior of the program, they couldn't. They were separated from the craft permanently so the craft could be hauled off elsewhere and auctioned off, and so that the program would have total control over the interview process. Because of this separation, the ETs would slowly die. Communication took place through telepathy. They can read our thoughts and send thoughts and impressions into our minds. However, this takes a lot of concentration on the part of the interviewer, and communication would break down as the health and consciousness of the subject declined. The interviewer and the ET would communicate telepathically, then the interviewer would say the exchange out loud for it to be recorded. From reading interviews with detained subjects, I and other researchers were able to put together a rough picture of how this species works and why they're here. Instead of having any kind of formal social structure, these beings form a dynamic superintelligence that is a composite of all of their minds. Reproduction doesn't take place biologically. Instead, they are artificially created, with each one designed for a specific person as their society has need. The intimate interlinking of their minds causes them to behave as one superorganism rather than individuals. To get into why they're here, we have to understand their philosophy. Philosophy is a human word made for human contexts, so it may not be appropriate to use that label, but I'll use it anyway. They have a monistic, reductionist ontology which bears heavy similarities to cosmopsychism or objective idealism. As far as I can tell, their philosophy is naturalistic but has some elements that could be misconstrued as religious. They reduce time, space, and everything to the behavior of a single, unitary consciousness, not to be confused with the superintelligence that I mentioned earlier. This consciousness behaves entirely spontaneously without deliberation or forethought. According to them, the minds of living organisms are part of this consciousness that is looped in on itself, creating separation and individuality. The process of evolution has caused some organisms, such as ourselves, to develop higher cognitive facilities and mental complexity, which allows for complex thought and self-reflection. Our perceptions are the mental activity of this unitary consciousness as it is filtered through our minds and presented in a way that is most advantageous to our survival as individual loops. We model the patterns of our observations as the laws of physics, but the laws of physics have no inherent existence except as the patterns of this universal mental activity. They believe that as life continues to grow and complexify, it'll have an effect on the unitary consciousness that constitutes the universe. As life proliferates and complexifies, 
it'll cause it to attain higher cognitive functions and eventually reach self-awareness. They believe that the universe is already blindly striving towards self-awareness and complexity, and they seek to move it along, so to speak. This is their goal, and it's presumably why they're here on Earth. They are guiding the development of life on this planet to help serve this end. I have no clue why they're so motivated to move toward this goal or what the actual implications would be if they succeeded. It also leads to other questions. If any of this is true, time itself is merely a construct created by this unitary consciousness. So how could it change and develop? How does this universal consciousness fragment into individual minds and what relationship does this have to biology and the origin of life? They are not afraid of dying because they believe that death is just a process where individuality breaks down and the mind unloops and becomes reintegrated into the unitary consciousness. They believe that memories and life experiences are reabsorbed into the consciousness during this process. Perhaps this is the mechanism that allows it to develop. Whether or not this is true, it seemed to bring them a lot of peace during their tormented final moments. Even in death, they served their purpose. Their philosophy shapes the way their society is organized in profound ways. They have unintentionally designed their technology in a way that integrates the mind and obscures individuality. They do not fear death and even embrace it when they have fulfilled their purpose. They have a positive attitude toward living organisms and ecosystems because the flourishing of life is so integral to them achieving their goals. However, they do not respect individuality, and they see individuals, including themselves, and species as expendable in the service of their goals. In the interviews, they voiced concern with the impact that humanity is having on life on this planet but also see us as a step in a process of complexification. They are definitely monitoring how life is developing on this planet, and it is very probable that they are subtly manipulating it to serve their goals. The similarity between their biology and ours makes me wonder whether they seeded on Earth with life to begin with. Maybe this planet has been their project from the beginning. I've been keeping up with this topic for a while now, and despite recent events, I feel very optimistic about disclosure. This isn't the kind of thing that can be kept a secret forever. They're here to stay, and a secret this large can only be kept for so long. None of the information, at least none that I learned during the project, is anything that would threaten civilization or cause a mass panic. People are more resilient than that. The cat is crawling its way out of the bag, and I don't think it's going to be forced back in without tremendous effort. The important thing is that ordinary people like you keep putting up resistance and support whistleblowers. I hope the report I helped to write eventually gets out to the public. Me and my coworkers put a lot of effort into writing it. You're listening to Disturbed. We'll be right back. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. 
However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Welcome back, listeners. Our final story is a voicemail from disturbed listener Walter, telling us an experience he had with his father and young child in the hospital. If you have a real-life story you think could be on the podcast, share it with us at disturbedpodcast.com. In 2014, my father had a heart attack. He went into the hospital to have a triple bypass surgery done. After his surgery was over, he went into the ICU and uh, stayed there for a couple of days. After he left the ICU, he went into the normal recovery portion of the hospital. And uh, I let him stay there for a couple days because I had a small child. He was three years old at the time. And when I finally brought him up to see his grandfather, I sat him on the foot of the bed because I didn't want my three-year-old up close to his chest where he could have jumped on him and, and caused more pain. But we were all having a nice conversation in, in my father's room when my three-year-old tugged at my shirt and he pointed toward the wall where the headboard of the bed was. And he pointed all the way up the wall where the wall and the ceiling meet. And he looked at me and said, Daddy, who's that man crying up there? I said, I'm sorry, what? And he pointed back to the wall again, said, Daddy, who's that man crying up there? Obviously, there was nobody up there that we could see, but my my three-year-old did. The best we can come up with is it was my grandfather, my father's dad, who had passed away in 2009, watching over my father and uh, crying because of my father's pain. Disturbed is a production of Killer Podcasts, a part of the Evergreen Network. For more paranormal and true crime shows, visit KillerPodcasts.com. Follow our social channels at Disturbed Podcast on Instagram or Disturbed underscore pod on Twitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and reviewing on your favorite listening platform. Share your own true horror story at DisturbedPodcast.com. Music by Epidemic Sound and Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Our producers are Noah Fouts and Elizabeth Flood. Our audio engineer is Nathan Corson. Executive producers, Bridget Coyne and Gerardo Orlando. Till next time, stay safe out there.
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.